Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have with me Nike Anani, who is a legacy planner with her own practice. She's a speaker, author, a consultant for family companies and offices. And she's also the co-founder of the African Family Firms, which is a nonprofit community of family businesses. We met through mutual friends within this next-gen community. And you have a really exciting book coming out, which we're going to talk about later, but really excited to have you on the show to talk about what's going on with the next-gen community, and specifically given your background, an area of the world that frankly doesn't get a lot of attention within the family office community, which mm-hmm. is Africa specifically. So maybe let's start there. It's interesting, the timing of this conversation. I just got back from a family office conference in West Palm Beach that was put on by a big international group. And I had a conversation this morning for a podcast with somebody who's based out of England, but that covers the globe. And we talked about Asia Pacific. We talked about the Middle East. Obviously, we talked about North America and Europe. But Africa just always gets this like short shrift, mm-hmm. not a ton of exposure. Why is that, in your opinion? <laughs> this is really why I'm doing the work that I do is that I feel like Africa's been left out of a lot of global conversations, not just in the family enterprise space, but in many other conversations. But I think it's two part. I think largely Africa is a lot more informal than other jurisdictions. And secondly, the conversation on family enterprise and family office, family business is relatively new on the continent. The awareness, you know, of that business owners for them to see themselves as family businesses is is something that's just catching on. And a lot of my work has been creating that very awareness that look, yes, the nuances of family businesses are such, and we have to treat them specially, especially when we're thinking of longevity. We have to think about 
family governance, we have to think about succession planning because on a continent like Africa is so much more important that we see this generational preservation because there's so much poverty, right? And family businesses, as you know, they create so much value, not just to the families that own them, but also to the economy, to the communities. And so, so yeah, I think it's not to say we don't have family businesses on the continent. We don't have high net worth families that are investing. We do. It's just there's no formal vehicle to which they're recognized. And a lot of my work is to to create that formality, build bridges from Africa to the world, from the world to Africa. And also to also promote a lot of intra-African collaboration and connectivity. A continent that has 1.4 billion people, 54 countries. In five years, its population will double. And one in four people on the planet will be African. Our median age is 18. It's so obvious that, I mean, the future is looking to Africa, right? Um, We have so much untapped resources. We've got the most arable land in the world. So this is definitely the next frontier. And Africa has to kind of join the global conversation, like I said. And also the rest of the world has to acknowledge and recognize that there is another continent out there. And we have our way of doing things. And there's an opportunity for us to learn from each other. And this is kind of the... (laughs) When I asked this question earlier this morning to Tom Burroughs, who is with this family office publishing group about Europe, he kind of pushed back against my stereotypical American context of Europe being this one thing, right? And he said, listen, the differentiation between a German family office and a Portuguese family office versus an English family office are worlds apart. And Africa is similar, right? I think many times North American people just kind of paint it with a broad brush and say it's one place huge divergence of culture, language, ethnicity within this enormously uh, vast continent. But can you speak to your own upbringing and history Mm. in terms of the culture of having a multi-generational family business? And when was the first time you heard about this concept of a family office? Mm. So I was born into a business family or my I'm the first of three. My parents started off the first family business the year I was born. So my dad was a doctor. My mom was a teacher. And as young professionals in the African continent context, rather, unfortunately, couldn't give me the standard of living that they really wanted. So my dad started entrepreneurship on the side soon enough. But by the time I was three, that became the main source of wealth for the family. And he stopped practicing medicine. So yeah, I was born into a business family. And as you can probably hear, I spent from age nine, I was in the UK for 16 years. So we relocated for our education and dad stayed back and continued to build out the family business. And whilst we're in the UK, it was evolving from a family business to a family enterprise because he'd started doing a lot of investing and he also incubated several operating businesses. I started my career in London in corporate tax international Deloitte, but I found it quite boring (laughs) and wanted something more and decided to come home for three months. Yeah. In 2011. And I ended up spending 10 years in the family business. (laughs) So I got very entrenched into the family business on the operating business side. That's where I started. And it's very funny that you mentioned when was the first time I heard about a family office. I remember about four months into my stay in Lagos, talking to a friend. He was a finance professional. He'd worked in JP Morgan in London. 
And he was back in Lagos to start his own business. And I was like, look, we need a vehicle to manage all this madness that dad's doing and to create some sanity, some structure, and to be able to have some long-term coherent planning that coordinates everything, both on the investing side and also on the operating businesses side. He was like, Nikia, what you're talking about is a family office. I was like, what's that? I've never heard of that in my life. (laughs) And he was like, it's very common in the Middle East. I was like, okay. And I started Googling. And I was like, oh my God, this is literally what we need. And I joined Fox, attended a few of their programs. I attended a couple other training programs in London as well. So that was my first kind of delve into the world of family office very much. There were very few resources on the ground, practically none, aside from my friend who happened to have worked with family offices in his role at JP Morgan. So there was a lot of self-teaching involved in, okay, so we need to set up a family office. What would that look like here? Like what staff will I need? What tech will I need? Do I need tech? What advisors do we need? So there was a lot of creating what I hadn't seen and pioneering, so to speak. And that was really the start of this whole multi-generational aspirational, aspiration rather. I mean, all through my childhood, my parents never mentioned the family business as a potential career opportunity for us kids. We were over in the UK building our lives and, you know, building our futures, attending university and starting our careers. And it was all always, let's set you up for success. But there was never a conversation about to come back to the business. And there were often kind of comments made about, you know, this business is for you, for your future. But we didn't really know what that meant in in true, like practical terms. And so, I mean, it was me moving back to Nigeria and seeing, wow, the scale of the operations, the complexity of the investments and the enterprise. There's a huge opportunity here to you know, ensure that I put my resources, my time, all my capital, human capital, to see that we're able to create something that would really outlive not just dad, not just me, but even my future generations. And that was that was really it. And and coming from Deloitte, where a lot of our clients were family enterprises. And I'd come across many family enterprises, not just like second or third generation, but 14th generation, 15th generation. But it was very, there weren't many in the African context around in Nigeria, there were very few examples that one could turn to. And I was like, okay, well, just because it's the norm that a lot of businesses in in Nigeria would fail to outlive the founder does not necessarily make it normal. (laughs) And there's an opportunity to do something quite differently. So I want to get into a little bit more of that. In Nigeria, is it culturally acceptable to talk about wealth creation, the a six, talk about how successful a family business is. And are there a lot of examples of multi-generational family held businesses that have gone through these transitions from you know one to two to three plus generations? That's a really great question. I think it's a bit taboo to talk about wealth. And there's context in which it's it's appropriate, right? Successful families are revered and respected and successful pioneers and entrepreneurs are very well respected in the community. But to have these conversations is is not necessarily the norm. Sorry, what was your, the second part of your question? Well, it, it was really, you know, in America, obviously, it's celebrated probably too much by certain people. But I had dinner two nights ago with somebody from Germany, part of a family office, 
And, and he said, in Germany, it's crass or crude to, to speak about these things. And obviously, there are certain contexts where it's acceptable, but just in general social world, you just don't bring it up, right? And I think part of the issue mm-hmm. with some of these places that don't have very robust family office communities is because there aren't venues in which you can feel safe to have these conversations. So do you see that changing in Nigeria since you've been involved in the family business? I think that comment is very much applicable in a Nigerian context, perhaps for a different reason than for in the German context. For instance, a person of wealth wouldn't necessarily want to claim it and you know shout it from the rooftops because you're in a context of a lot of poverty where everyone has needs. And then you suddenly become like this philanthropist. And so there's almost, we need to just keep a low profile. And also there's a lot of political risk and economic risk as well. So there's usually an aversion towards like, you know, talking about these things. It's very much private. And I do have to say, I agree with that comment that, you know, this aversion towards talking about it means we're not able to learn from each other's experiences. We're not able to support each other. And a lot of the work that I do is I'm a co-founder of African Family Firms, which is just a business association of business owners. And we create a safe space where it's trusted, there's confidentiality, where business owners can talk about these things, exploring what's the meaning of wealth for the next generation, or you know, how do we go about building legacy wealth? Or how do you go about choosing your successes? These really difficult conversations that don't happen in the pub or at a bar on a Friday night with your friends. They they just these conversations just don't come up like when you're a professional and you want to get a raise or you've met your spouse and you want to get married. These conversations have been normalized, but conversations of family wealth matters are not routine conversations. In I did do my homework. I've had the opportunity to interact with a few Nigerians and they're so entrepreneurial. And I actually found a stat that I'm sure is a little bit wrong, but something like 35 out of every 100 Nigerians characterize themselves as entrepreneurs. Yeah. So how can you have this culture that is this grind entrepreneurial culture and starting these businesses, but then there's no plan beyond the founder? Yeah, it's very ironic, isn't it? Nigeria is I like Americans, very, very entrepreneurial, very capitalist. But you, you and I know that the same mindset needed, the mindset needed to start a business is not the mindset needed to preserve it across generations. In fact, sometimes that very mindset can be to the detriment of the longevity from a generational perspective, right? In the early days, the founder typically occupies a very central role and does everything, <laughs> drives everything. If he or she's not in the room, nothing gets done. And, you know, they're the visionary as well as the executor. By the time you're moving to second generation, and also, sorry, one other really important point is often decision-making is quite intuitive, locked into the head and the heart of the founder. But when we're moving into second generation where we're trying to then rally the kids along, right? Or maybe mom and dad have passed away now and it's the kids that need to move into the future. We have to move from individual rulership to collective leadership, which requires vision. And if that vision was locked into the head and the heart of mom or dad, it makes it very difficult for four kids to then decide what are we going to do? Because then it's a guesswork. Well, dad would have wanted this. No, he wouldn't. She would have wanted that. Well, no, he wouldn't. And then there's 
opportunities for fractions, right? And division. So just in a nutshell, it's really, I often say the mindset to start a business in the early stages is very different. The skill set is very different from when you need to move it across generations. In fact, we don't want the founder to be so granular and micromanaging the business, being the builder. We want to be able to be facilitators, to have vision and to rally a whole troop of willing followers that believe in the vision that can move the business along. So, so the founder doesn't have to necessarily be an operational person, but more strategic. That's what we need later on in the family's business's evolution. And so that's this lifetime to legacy concept that you talk about? Precisely. precisely. Okay. And, and that makes a lot of sense. And my question to you is, given how entrepreneurial the Nigerian culture is, is there pushback with the next generation because people would prefer to build their own legacy? And is there a conflict there of being a... And I know I have this dynamic in my family, the pressure of this wealth creator and always kind of being in their shadow... How does that play out within your culture? Very great question. I'll speak personally and for a few friends that I know. Actually, I find that with Americans and Europeans, it's more of an expectation and that pressure to come to the business that's placed explicitly, implicitly by the founder on the next generation. We have a, a slightly added dynamic where we next gens are typically school abroad and then we typically will stay where we are. And so our parents don't typically plan for us to come back to the business. And so that expectation is not not necessarily that. However, in terms of your question, in terms of the next generation wanting to build their own legacy, I see that all the time. A lot of next gen see the opportunity to work alongside the founder as one of sacrificing their vision, their mission in life their passions. But I think it's not either or, I think it can be and. And that's been my life is, the thing is, a lot of the time, it's also a lack of understanding of the variety of options that are available to them. So they see it as coming into the family business to work as dad worked or as mom worked, but there's a way to add your skill set, your gifts and your talents that might not necessarily look like the way your parents did. It could be starting a family office. It could be being a board member, an advisory board member. It could be starting a foundation. It could be, you know, starting a new division within the family business, expanding into new frontiers, geographic markets or products and services and what have you. So there are many opportunities to add one's skill set, to add value to the family business. And it is very possible to pursue one's dreams, one's entrepreneurship, ventures or what have you, as well as add value to the existing legacy business. I couldn't agree more. And I I love your statement that you can have it both. And what I've seen change over the last three to five years within the family office community is not a recognition, but really a push towards realizing that there needs to be wealth creation in every generation to sustain this over the long term. And so you really need to try to encourage that entrepreneurship. So let's flip the question on its head. Mm-hmm. How challenging is it for the first generation community within your culture to accept the fact that these young you know, entrepreneurs want to maybe shake things up or go in a different direction? 
educate them about what a family office is. Is that also part of this dynamic? Very challenging in a culture that's quite age dominant, right? Where the young are just supposed to obey the elders. And we've been schooled in cultures that encourage free thinking, independence, autonomy, challenging the status quo. We've gone out into the world and we've seen the best of the world and we want to bring that back and shake things up to future-proof the family enterprise. So naturally, it does create tension. There's need on the part of the elder generation to truly understand that they've equipped their kids for the best. Now it's time for them to do the best that they can, right? So that's a common challenge that dad, mom won't let go. They won't let me have a voice here. There's no room for me here. And quite often, I've had a number of next gens that have been frustrated, so frustrated with that experience that they leave and then they just start their own thing separately. But I do think that there's an art to it in the sense that one can be a change champion. It's really understanding the psychology of the founder, gaining deep empathy for the founder, how to win them over with your ideas and to influence and persuade And that's not to say it's a 12-step thing to changing your family business in 90 days. No, it's a slow-burning process. However, in an ideal world, we'd want to see that the founders and the next gen are working to walk towards each other, right? And making compromises. But that's not always possible. Is there resentment sometimes of the type of people that parents get back after they send them abroad for 10, 15, 20 years back into the world, and then they come back a different person than maybe that they've left with? Of course. Yeah. You sent a baby, they've come back an adult, they've got their own minds, right? They're, they're multicultural. They have values that might be completely alien to you. You just don't get it. You just had an expectation that you'd send them and they'd come back as you wanted, but they've changed, right? I used to say when I was in university, I'm a Brigerian. I'm a British Nigerian. Proudly so. Equal parts. And I think it's for life is about change and evolution and we can't be scared of change. But unfortunately, we've all been kind of we're programmed to just want to maintain the status quo, aren't we? And it's for the founders to appreciate that, that change is not necessarily a bad thing. Right. They come back with a wider perspective and that diversity of thought is actually critical for the future of the business and the enterprise. We don't want just people echoing each other like, yeah, I think that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We actually want as wide a variety of thoughts and opinions as possible. So that we talked about exactly this at this conference this week of maybe 10, 20 years ago, diversity and inclusion were aspirational things that people were being told they needed to do. Now, I think the realization has come full circle to understanding that if you don't have a diverse executive functionality or workforce or employee base or family membership, you're not going to get the best ideas. You're not going to get the best practitioners or whatever subject matter experts that you want. Where is Nigeria in that? Is it mm. is gender inclusive inclusivity and, and age inclusivity something that is being put into action today? That's a fantastic question. And it's a mixed bag because Nigeria is a complex con- country. So 50% of Nigeria is Muslim and 50% is Christian. And it's really divided. North North is Muslim, South is Christian predominantly. So there's kind of regional variations. But by and large, to the conversation on gender inclusivity in Lagos, Abuja, Port Harcourt, your major cities, is there's a lot of awareness that it's picking up. Can we do better? For sure. 
The conversation on age inclusivity, however, is way behind. So our median age in Nigeria is 18. However, your average political leader is 72. And also your average business leaders in their 60s, I want to believe. So the very thought, the conversation on including the young generation, understanding their perspectives and priorities and understanding their viewpoints is one that we have a long way to go because of the cultural, like I said, predisposition towards the younger to be seen, not heard, <laughs> they're to be told what to do. And the generation, Gen Zs and millennials are very, you know, unique generation globally they're very outspoken they they won't take you know where their voices are not welcomed honored they leave those spaces without apology and it's the same in nigeria another added kind of dimension to this diversity conversation which we have in nigeria is tribes we have 250 tribes and we are 200 million people and in again in the cities the inclusivity of different tribes is relatively stronger than in other areas. So yeah, this conversation on inclusivity is one that I'm really passionate about. And I think it's also beyond the apparent, like the demographic, what we tick on the census box, your age, your sex, your race and things. I think it's also your life experiences. Like we were kind of alluding to, if I had, you know, a magic wand and I could choose a team of people, I would want you know, diversity of ex- global experiences or local experiences, diversity of age, of gender, of, you know, perspectives, like you said, because of this cognitive diversity that's so important. I was reading something that Adam Grant put up on Twitter a couple of days ago, and he was saying, great minds don't think alike. They challenge each other to think differently. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's just so... And that's what we need in our world, because we're facing such disruption that our previous generations never faced and so many social issues. So we have to come together to co-create, allow for a culture that enables people to question and challenge the status quo. It's not being rebellious. It's just pushing the frontiers, trying to innovate, right? I think it's really important. So along those lines, you know, Nigeria has this really burgeoning tech world. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the demographics of of Africa in general. There's going to be huge innovation there. It's already way ahead of most of the world in terms of mobile tech, fintech, mobile payment systems, like much more so than, than America and Europe. And I just see in the horizon that there'll be some massive wealth creation happening within Africa itself. How are you as a family trying to help build that ecosystem out? And mm-hmm. what are you most excited about? And what are you worried about with what mm-hmm. you see playing out with this young generation of entrepreneurs? I'm super excited. I think, you know, the wealth creation by tech entrepreneurs is like none other, right? We're seeing just explosive amounts of wealth. And on a continent, like I've kind of alluded to, that's had a lot of absolute and relative poverty. That's always a good thing. And as an organization, African family firms, we're positioning ourselves for that to not only cater to your legacy families that are established with their manufacturing businesses or what have you, but this new generation of founders that are coming to the fore who have quite distinct preferences and needs. 
So with your 40-year-old tech entrepreneur, he really doesn't care if his child works with him in his business. He actually doesn't typically expect that they would, but would be more amenable towards having conversations on like the wider family enterprise. How do I create a cohesive structure that engages all my kids and such that they can collectively make decisions to manage the family's wealth, the business, whatever's left of it. Typically, they want to sell, whether entirely, or sell down their businesses. But I am, you know, I just don't want us to make the same mistakes our parents' generation made, you know, in thinking about the now and to the expense of the future. And so that's why I'm writing the book on Lifetime to Legacy with this new generation of entrepreneurs. As you're starting your your journey, how can you ensure that you're planning with legacy in mind? And that entails starting with the end in mind, long-term planning. Legacy is not built overnight. There's no overnight success. It's not when you want to retire, then you start looking around what's next, right? It's not transactional. It takes time. It takes vision. It takes intentionality. And in addition, I really am an ardent believer in the importance of community is critical. We learn so much from community, from other people's mistakes, their you know triumphs, as well as their trials. But also, I strongly believe that there's a huge correlation between social capital and financial capital. And to start to get entrepreneurs to get into community with each other, whether that's in our network, African Family Firms, or other networks like YPO, I think it's really critical that entrepreneurs don't do this alone, but they learn from each other so they can start to co-create ideas together and support one another. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of affinity networks, be they Fox or these other family office groups like Campton that we're a member of. And I joined YPO six months ago and it's incredible. Mm-hmm. The network and the leverage that you can have and just the how broad, but also cliche, but everyone's kind of going through the same issues, right? And I think it's really... (laughs) Honestly. (laughs) It's really, you know, when we do these big needs and leads or these Zoom calls with people all over the world, literally, and at the end of it, pretty much every entrepreneur is saying, I don't know how to balance life and work. I want my kids to be decent people. What should I do? I'm like, Mm -hmm. this is the same conversation happening in New Zealand and America and Africa, et cetera. So let's talk more about the book. When is it coming out? What are you covering in it? And what do you hope people kind of get out of it? Awesome. So the book will be out end of January. And it's really how to take a family business from a lifetime business to a legacy business. And it's not on the technical elements like financial planning or strategic business planning or wealth planning. It's really about the relational elements. How do you build greater connectivity in your family to bring about building the the enterprise of the future? How do you bring about creativity, unlock collaboration? And I say it's not good enough for us to have this conversation on protecting the future of the business. We have to also create the business of the future. And that's what it's about. How And we do this looking at the three C's that I believe are the critical success factors for business families, families that have clarity of vision, mission, and conviction, families that communicate, and families that collaborate. And I go deep on all those elements. So I have looked into writing a book. I don't have the guts to do it. It's a lot of work. And for somebody in your position, given your education, your background, your current family situation, what motivated you to do this? Really legacy. 
my legacy. Legacy can take different forms. And I, it took me a long time to get here, to feel comfortable and acknowledging that I did have a, a voice and I had a unique perspective on this. But it was really a legacy of knowledge. Knowledge is truly lacking on the continent, you know. And I just wanted to leave that behind with this next generation of entrepreneurs. How can you build with legacy in mind? And this is also part of the consulting work you do with groups as well, right? Can you talk a little bit about the type of work you do and the type of family that is best served by your by your work product? Yes. So I love working with families that are undergoing generational transition, moving from first to second gen, right? So I typically work with the successors who are either stepping into legacy, so see themselves taking over a family business or setting up a family office. And I help to bridge the gap between themselves and the founders. This can happen one-on-one. So I coach them and guide them on how to be a catalyst within the family enterprise setting. Or sometimes this is a group setting with themselves and their siblings. How do you become effective siblings partners, not just being siblings? Because as siblings, we bicker, we squabble, we have fun, but we're not necessarily business partners. And it takes intentionality and planning to become business partners. I also work with the whole family. So typically first gen and second gen on what is the business that, what is the business of the future that we desire? How are we going to get there? Just ideating and creating stickiness and connectivity within the family so they can move on that journey collectively and gain full clarity on what's the compelling reason for us to stay in business together or to stay investing together. And yeah, that's the way I typically work. Awesome. And much needed right now with just the immense amount of transition happening with this aging baby boomer population Mm -hmm. and these millennials like myself are trying to figure out what to do, how to navigate all this. If people are interested in learning more about the book, it's not out yet, but we'll try to maybe have a pre-sale link included in the show notes. If they want to learn about the book or the services you provide, what's the best way for them to connect with you and learn more? Yes, you can learn more about me on my website, www.nikeanani.com. That's N-I-K-E-A-N-A-N-I.com. And also on my social media, I'm most active on LinkedIn. My links to my social media are on my website as well, as well as Instagram. And I'm also a podcast host, (laughs) The Connected Generation. And the links to that are also on my website. So the best place to go is my website. <laughs> and it's kind of funny you're going through all this. And I have the same, although I need I like the personal website idea. I need to work on that. I'm curious, this is like probably my last question, but <laughs> is there a conflict within some of these Nigerian families of the realization that you want to keep a low profile and you want to be discreet? But in today's world, you really need to be a media company if you want <laughs> to get the best deal flow, the best human capital, the best ideas, like you need to put yourself out there. I know in America, it's a real challenge for families like myself. So how are you dealing with it? And then the families you talk to, how are they dealing with it? It's a definitely a tension for the families I'm dealing with because they love to keep a low profile. And it's a lot of the values they espouse is about discretion and, you know, <laughs> being very humble And like you said, putting oneself out there is really the best way to get opportunities, to build your network, to get financial opportunities as well, to find great people to work with you and your business. Because it's not family business who, what, but yeah, 
that's the business I want to work with. So it's something I always try to encourage folks to do, but it's a journey. A number of folks that I've mentored on, you want to start thinking about not just necessarily a personal brand. I'm not asking Nina to put herself out there, but can we start looking at the family business's brand, at least like websites, (laughs) videos, Social media, it's like the basics that we need in the 21st century. But yeah, you're right. It's the common struggle that we face as well within my market. Yeah, I had this conversation with an Indian entrepreneur that had moved to the States and he had to leave just because his family was so well known in India that it was almost overwhelming. But now that he's left, he wants to talk about the business, Hmm. but he's afraid of what his family will think about that. And you're just seeing this play out more and more with social media. And so I'm curious what the experience in Africa is. Well, thank you so much for the time. It's been awesome. I look forward to the book. I'll be sure to, to try to pre-purchase it. And then you know, I have to throw this in here that past the US, like I do support the Super Eagles. I think the team is always... <laughs> thank you. I think it's like, well, they play with so much energy. The uniforms are so cool. And like <laughs> you all always really show up for the World Cup. So we'll be pulling for you. And um <laughs> Hopefully we can you know stay in touch and I want to thank for you again sure. for coming on. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Okay, take care. Take care. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.